0: Well, our text today, as we continue through our study of Genesis, will be chapter 12. We're going to do verses 10 through 20. So Genesis chapter 12, 10 through 20. And if you do have your copy of God's word, I would encourage you to open up to that as we'll be following closely with that today. Now, there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there. For the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister, so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks. And our Lord and our God, we thank you for your holy word. Holy Spirit, we thank you for inspiring it. We pray now that you would apply it to our hearts, that we may walk in wisdom and in obedience according to your word. And I ask for your help now. Keep me from error. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable to you and edifying for Christ's church. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, a a popular activity for children uh, is, of course, the timeless paint-by-number craft, where they are given a picture that's divided up into sections. Each section, of course, has a corresponding number. and Then there's a color that correlates to the number. And so the children need simply to identify which color goes with which number, and then they'll have a decent shot at painting a recognizable Picture. Now, that doesn't mean it doesn't take any skill or technique that can be done poorly or well. However, there is one thing in the paint-by-number world that not only isn't needed, but cannot be brought to bear on it. Namely, wisdom. Wisdom, by definition, is making a good choice in a difficult situation Or scenario, or when you have strong inclinations to do the opposite, but restrain them because you see an outcome when the factors aren't cut and dry or easy, but you choose them when there is not a direct line between number and color and wisdom is not easy to come by. That's why in the book of Proverbs, wisdom is the great treasure to be sought after and to be discovered. Wisdom is hard to come by because, one, it takes humility, which is very hard for us as sinners, and also because it takes a lot of experience. For instance, we see the challenge of wisdom in Proverbs 26, 4, and 5, which says, Answer not a fool according to his folly. Do not answer a fool according to his folly. Do not do that, lest you be like him in lest you be like him yourself. So don't answer a fool according to his folly so you don't become a fool as well. Next verse, answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. So which is it, Solomon? Well, it depends. And that's the point. It takes wisdom. So the wise person does not think simplistically about situations. It knows the world is not paint by numbers but it understands its complexities and nuances and the best path forward, given the information at hand. And I bring all of this up because our text today forces us to wrestle with a situation that is a bit perplexing, especially on a surface reading. This is not a paint-by-numbers text with clear, obvious moral categories. See, in the text... Abram is going to concoct a plot with his wife, Sarai, to deceive Pharaoh to protect his life. And this gets our attention, especially when Abram and Abraham is set before us as the picture of faith and faithfulness in the scriptures. So what do we do with this? Well, the first thing we do is recognize there is a great need for wisdom here. And wisdom in two ways. Wisdom for Abram in his scenario. And then wisdom for us as we try to understand what happened in that scenario. Because the most common take of this scene is that Abram, driven by what can only be described as astonishing selfishness and cowardness, makes a moral faceplant of epic proportion, where he essentially offers up his wife and his dignity to Pharaoh in order to save his own skin. That's the most common interpretation, and it's certainly understandable why someone would land there from an initial reading, but is that true? Is that really what's happening there? And I I don't think so. I'm in the minority view here, not alone, but certainly in the minority, but I don't think so. I'm going to suggest that there's actually more going on here and that Abram doesn't so quickly just completely lose his faith in Yahweh, but that in fact, he actually exercised faith and shrewdness in the midst of a very difficult God-ordained situation. And like the drunken Noah sermon, if you're here for that, again, it is the minority interpretation. So if you disagree, today is not a test of orthodoxy by any stretch. You are welcome to disagree, but I truly do believe that's what it is. So I have a responsibility to bring that To bear, And I think it really does matter for how we understand Abram and his journey and his growth in in faith. So I hope to give you a few compelling reasons for why I land here. And, And today we're just going to work our way straight through the text and we'll make observations as we go along. So again, beginning in verse 10, it says, Now there was a famine in the land, and so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there. For, the famine was severe in the land. So, so there's an awful famine here. And this isn't the last time that we're going to see a famine in Genesis. In fact, all the patriarchs are afflicted with a famine that forces them to look elsewhere for, for refuge. So this is a theme. And this is because in God's providence... The land of Canaan, so the promised land, is is inland, and there's no modern irrigation yet, and so they are wholly dependent on rainfall. But Egypt, in God's providence, becomes a common refuge for those that are in famine because she has the great Nile River, and so is insulated from some of the jagged, harsh edges of a famine that would come. Obviously, we'll see the scenario replayed famously at the end of Genesis when Jacob's sons go to Egypt to find food and they find Joseph, who they sold into slavery in charge in Egypt. So that story obviously will have to wait. But again, we see a pattern forming here early on in in Genesis. And something that's worth reflecting on before we move forward is we ended last time with Abram building an altar. And calling upon the name of the Lord. And, and what comes next after that? A severe famine comes next. And this reminds us, we must be very careful not to see hardships and challenges we face automatically as God's judgment or displeasure. That is simplistic thinking. Now, God certainly disciplines Those he loves, there are consequences for sin, but we need not be simplistic in our understanding. The Lord afflicts those he loves as he matures them. Why? The Lord wants Abram to grow strong in faith. And so this famine is undercover grace, because as has been said, a faith that is not tested is a faith that cannot be trusted. And it's going to get a lot harder for Abram coming up. And so this is a test for him. Continuing on, verses 11 through 13. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they'll say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they'll let you live. So say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you and that my life may be spared for your sake. Okay, so they, they plot and concoct this situation, and, and this is at the heart of our ethical conundrum today. So, so how in the world can this be anything other than bold-faced cowardice and sinful deception, which presents a dramatically different Abram than we just saw? Well, I'm going to offer a few, a few arguments here that I think are important remember so that we don 't think simplistically about what's going on first this exact plot the whole sister wife plot happens three times in fifteen chapters in Genesis so it happens here it happens in Genesis 20 Abram does it again with Abimelech and then in 26 Isaac and Rebekah do the same thing to another abimelech so this is a pattern now now that fact alone doesn't absolve abram of guilt if there's any to be had people can obviously sin in the same way over and over again however it at least gives us pause to think perhaps there's something more going on here and remember as the patriarchs navigate hostile lands with pagan rulers Their chief goal, based on the promise, is to preserve the seed of the woman. To to protect the seed of promise. And Satan's chief goal is to destroy the seed of the promise. So this is the great drama in the Torah. And we actually find this out that Abram understood this early on. See, the the plan was actually premeditated way before they were even at the threshold of Egypt. Yes, in our text today, it says when they were at Egypt. But what we find out is Abram is just saying, now it's go time, to something they had already discussed. And so we see this actually in Genesis 20. So the second time he does this, he tells this to Abimelech. He says, verse 13, when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to Sarai, This is the kindness you must do me. At every place to which we come, say of me, he is my brother. So consider this, and this is important, at least it was for me in my understanding of this. If this plan was truly an astonishing act of moral failure, Abram came up with it at the same moment where he is praised for tremendous faith in God's promise. Which seems hard to fathom. So he's praised for faith in setting out because of God's promise, but that's also when he made the plan for this with Sarah. Now, I'm not saying Abraham was sinless, obviously, but this would present a remarkable duplicity in the man. And yet the scriptures overwhelmingly present him as a picture of faith. So that's one. Next, Abram's presenting as Sarai's brother in this situation actually seems to be a shrewd move that would provide more protection for Sarai as well and time for them to figure out what they're going to do and to give time for God to intervene. And verse 13 is key here. It says, Say you are my sister that it may go well with me because of you, And that my life might be spared for your sake. And to understand this, that there's a cultural piece that is not explained overtly in the text, but is absolutely crucial for this situation, I believe. Namely, in the ancient world, if a father wasn't present, the oldest brother became responsible for the giving away of his sister he would be the one to allow her to marry. So we even get a sense of this in chapter 24. So they send a servant to try to find a wife for Isaac, Rebecca, who first comes out to see what's going on, Lot. And Lot is Rebecca's brother. And yet he is part of the mediation of the marriage there. And so if a foreigner comes into Egypt and Pharaoh wants her, but she's married, well, there's only one thing that Pharaoh can do to get her. Kill the husband, which is not... That's Tuesday morning for Pharaoh. That's not a big deal. And we know Abram's instincts are legit as far as how things are going to play out. Because when they get to Egypt, exactly what he predicted happened. Verse 14, when Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. So Pharaoh like what he sees and immediately enlists her in his horde of women in his house. Now, it needs to be noted that the language of taken into his house does not have sexual overtones to it. So we have no reason to think that there was a sexual encounter here. In fact, the way the Lord intervenes seems to imply he actually preserved her and Pharaoh from that happening which is important but the fact that pharaoh was just willing to claim her and with what we know about rulers in the ancient world it is certainly not a stretch to think that if she was married well he can make very quick work of that and have her but because abram presented as her brother and we do know that he was her half-brother Verse 16 shows that Abram was dead on with his prediction. Pharaoh dealt kindly with him, even giving him all kinds of possessions. Because why not try to butter up the brother? Why not try to get their people on your side if you're Pharaoh? But the situation still isn't great. (laughs) Pharaoh still has Sarai in his house. Abram and his people are still at their mercy, but they are in his graces thus far. And Abram is still alive. Sarai has not been abandoned by his death. And there is still hope that the Lord will intervene here. And that's precisely what we see. Verse 17. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So the Lord rains down plagues coming upon Pharaoh. So notice another theme developing. Plagues coming on Pharaoh in defense of his people. And he rescues the bride from the clutches of his enemy. And notice who gets no divine rebuke in the story anywhere. Abram. Now Pharaoh does protest and he pleads his case. He says, it says, so Pharaoh called Abram and said, why is this? What, what is this that you have done to me? Why, why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister? So that I took her for my wife. Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. Think, let my people go. And some reading this, thinks this proves that Pharaoh is actually the victim here. That, that he would have only been so ready and so reasonable to relinquish her if he would have just said it was his Life, if, if Abram would have just been honest. But I submit this is to be naively optimistic about the inherent goodness of Pharaoh. To say it lightly. That he was such a good man who just wanted to do the right thing. If he only knew. No. Pharaoh is a pagan tyrant king who gets what he wants from whomever he wants whenever he wants and has no fear of Yahweh, and is regarded as the king in Egypt, and worshipped as such. And Remember, this is the man who collects attractive women like trophies for fun. Now, of course, when a plague has befallen him, and he's, he's humbled, he's remorseful and shocked, but it's because he has felt the wrath of the living God. But it would be a great misreading of scripture, I believe, to view Pharaoh as helpless victim and Abram as malicious villain. I don't think that's the picture here. Abram's synopsis of the scenario was not faulty. And as we come to the final verse, we see that just as Pharaoh let the people in Exodus go because of the plagues, so we get a prequel of the Lord's salvation here. Verse 20, and Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him. And they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. So Pharaoh gets the judgment, the bride gets rescued, and Abram gets the blessing, even plundering Pharaoh on the way out. Another theme. He takes all that Pharaoh had given him, which again only reinforces the picture that this was not a moment of tremendous unfaithfulness on the part of the father of the faith. But in fact, it would suggest the opposite. But I do want to consider one very important primary objection here to how I understand Abram's actions before we get to the conclusion. And the objection is a pretty pretty straightforward one. Namely, but Abram lied. Abram lied. Duh. I don't need to be told that he sinned. He lied. That's a pretty big one. It's called the Ninth Commandment. Pastor Brooks, heard of that one? That would, that would be me if I'm you right now, thinking that. Yes, I agree. Lying is sinful. It is one of the top ten. It's a big one. Yet, there is moments in Scripture when deception is not only allowed, but it's praised and is blessed by God in very specific circumstances. It's not always paint by number. For instance, of course, we have the Hebrew midwives in Exodus 1, where Pharaoh says, Kill all the male babies, snuff out the seed, now. And they say, Now, now. Oh, the the Hebrew women, they're so (laughs) vigorous. They deliver before we get there. What in the world? They were there. They lied to Pharaoh. And they are praised, or consider Rahab the Canaanite prostitute who hid the Hebrew spies. And when they came, they, she lied and said they, they, went, they went that way. And not only is Rahab saved and blessed, she makes it into Jesus' genealogy in Matthew 1. I mean, talk about a promotion. Or consider the, the Magi, who Herod says tricked him in Matthew 2. When Herod said, come and once you find and tell me, because I want to come worship The seed of the woman is well. But they tricked him, and they would not tell him. Now, of course, my point is not to advocate or justify deception and to try to make wiggle room for sin. Lord knows we don't need any of that. Our hearts are already given towards justifying our sin. So I do not want to encourage that at all. But I am trying to do justice to the text and to think wisely with the data Scripture gives us. And, And here, perhaps, perhaps, is a biblical principle that we can distill from these things. Namely, we have to keep always before us this great battle between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And when the serpent threatens to devour the seed, and we see that typically through the power of wicked kings, it's okay to deceive the serpent. It's a war now. It's, It's okay in that battle just as Bonhoeffer had a conspiracy against Hitler, it's okay to use that tactic against the seed of the serpent. Of course, the Hebrew midwives knew they should never lie until Pharaoh decreed the murder of the baby boys. And then it's game on because they're dealing with the serpent. And and I see that as what's going on here. As Abram and Sarai sojourned through the lands they will encounter wicked kings in tremendous power who do not fear Yahweh and who want to take the woman that is to bear the seed of promise. So that's my take. But now the question we must ask in conclusion is what what do we do with this text? How does this impact Tuesday at 11 a.m.? That's often how I think how can I help them understand what to do at Tuesday at 11 a.m. with the text? So two closing principles based on the text. Number one, the Lord will find creative ways to test our faith. The Lord will find creative ways to test our faith. A banner verse over Abram's life that we must keep before us as we journey Through his life is Romans 4.20. It says, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promises of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. So Abram already demonstrated faith by leaving his home country and building an altar. And we might say, okay, so he proved his faith now. But the Lord says, that's good. Now let's have another. A famine that will force you to Pharaoh. Why? Why? Because God is putting more weight on the bar. Abram is in a faith boot camp. And the Lord is just getting warmed up. Because in Genesis 22. We'll find the greatest moment of faith in human history demonstrated. Apart from our Lord Jesus Christ. When the Lord says now now kill him. So that doesn't just happen. (laughs) You don't just become the type of person who trusts in that command. You have to grow strong in the faith. And so it is for us. Though you might be content with your level of faith, God's not. He wants you to grow stronger. So he'll keep writing in cliffhangers. jamelia the great martyred missionary, once said, One does not surrender a life in an instant. That which is lifelong can only be surrendered over a lifetime. Maturity is the accomplishment of years, and I can only surrender to the will of God as I know in that moment what his will is. And so when we respond with fear and anxiety and bitterness towards other because of a circumstance, it reveals itself for the grace that it is. Because that's the very place where our faith needed to be grown. And so that's another opportunity for surrender by faith to God's purposes. Next and final, number two. The Lord always protects his bride. The Lord always protects his bride. Abram's bride, the mother of the seed, was rescued out of Pharaoh's mighty clutches. Sarai was saved, but it wasn't because of Abram's shrewd scheme. Yes, that was part of the story, but ultimately the bride was saved and undefiled because God Almighty intervened on her behalf. And he rained down plagues on any who would try to lay a hand on his beloved. And what is true of the bride of Abram? How much more is true of the bride of Jesus Christ? Your Savior went toe to toe with the serpents. Your Savior went to the cross, driven by covenant-keeping love for his bride. And there he absorbed the full wrath, the full plague that should have rained down on us he did it in our place and then he plundered the strong man and he stole the claim that he had on humanity and now he leads us in triumphal procession moment by moment as we head towards glory together and so saints of god let us go forth this week confident in christ's love for you and for his purposes for you and his power to hold you fast through it all to the praise of his name and for the strengthening of our faith Our Lord and our God, (laughs) you certainly are writing quite a creative story. Story of redemption, story of hope, story of promise. And Father, I I pray that we would grow in wisdom based on this text. If nothing else to understand, yes, you write hard things into the story so that your power could be made manifest in a way that it couldn't otherwise be. Lord, may we be a people who, that we just, we just believe that. That's just our default setting. Of course, this is the Lord's doing. And of course, he will provide for his glory. And if I die, then it's the ultimate upgrade to fight the serpents. May it be. And now we would pray the way our Lord taught us to pray.